When I was in college, I briefly dated a girl who was very spunky, to say the least. She was four feet, 11 inches tall, and the only reason I mention that is because there was a, a, a song in that day whose lyrics weren't the depth of the song that Tyler Gale just sang for us. These lyrics were, I'm only four foot 11, but I'm going to heaven. And it makes me feel 10 feet tall. That kind of captures the personality of this bubbly girlfriend. And, and once she was called on to open a campus prayer meeting, we were attended, attending in prayer, and she began her prayer like this. Hi, pops. I was a little stunned. And I hoped that this opening of her prayer was an anomaly, uh, an abnormality. An aberration from the way that she normally began her prayers, but it wasn't. And because she was so bubbly, she was called on very often to pray. And every time she prayed, it was like this. Hi, Pops. Hey, Pops. And now you know why she's not my wife. <laughs> Just kidding. I found a far better one. But I, 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 I didn't know what to do with that. Every time I heard it, it was like a shock to my system. It was like ice cold water in the face of an already frozen, chosen, lifelong Presbyterian. But the shock was good for me because it made me ask questions like, what's wrong with saying, hi, pops? Is anything wrong with it? How do you keep the balance? How can you be intimate with a holy God? How do you reconcile our Father with hallowed be thy name. How can God be both Abba and holy? How do we keep the pendulum in the middle to prevent it from swinging to a side of cold austerity or on the other side, irreverent flippancy? These are important questions for us to answer because you and I must be intimate with the holy. You and I must be. We are called to be intimate with the holy. That's what I want to talk about this morning as we turn, return once again to Matthew chapter 6, the Lord's Prayer. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn in them. The Gospel of Matthew, the 6th chapter. When you've found your place, let's stand together so we might hear, read together the word of the living God. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, this is the word of the Lord. Jesus says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Let's pray together. Father, we call on you now once again as our good Father to teach us your greatly cherished, beloved, adopted children. We need you, Spirit of God, to teach us, to mold us, to shape us into the kind of disciples that you want us to be, who relate to you, rightly, and therefore relate to the world rightly. So 
We pray that you would accomplish that in us and through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. And let's talk first this morning about a close, intimate relationship with God. You know, you and I can't unknow things that we already know, particularly things in our lives that we take for granted. For instance, you and I can't unknow what it's like to have electricity. Most of us have never lived in our lives where there was not electricity. We were born into an electric world, and we assume it every day of our lives. Therefore, we can't enter into the amazement that marked the lives of the people when they saw a light bulb turn on for the very first time. We can't comprehend the innovation that that brought to their lives. The same is true for an automobile. My grandmother told me she was 12 years old before she ever saw her first car. That would have been 1920. This strange new thing entered her horse and buggy world and she never forgot that moment. It was a time marker for her. Her life before she saw a car and her life afterward. We can't enter into that amazement. The same is true. Name any innovation in our lives. They're, they're always amazing. Innovations always grab our attention. And innovations almost always hold out the promise of making our lives better. And so it is with this second word that the Lord teaches His disciples to pray in this model prayer. The word radically revolutionizes the prayer life of those who follow Christ. It compels the disciple of Christ to revision his or her prayer life so that it becomes even better and deeper and righter and more effective. So what's the word? What is the word? Our what? Father. Father. The people gathered on the mountain listening to Jesus had never heard this word used in this way before. And so this moment on the mountain with Jesus was like a time marker for them. Like seeing a light bulb or an automobile for the first time. There was life before they heard Jesus pray this prayer. And there was life after they heard him pray it. And I'm not overstating the case. Many, many commentators quote the work of Joachim Jeremiah. He was an internationally renowned Bible scholar. And he did research in and, and published in the area of Hebrew Bible and rabbinic texts. And as he searched through the texts of the Old Testament writings, as he looked through the existing texts from rabbis, he could find no examples, okay, zero, not one example in any of those writings where God was directly addressed in prayer as Father. He found no such reference until the 10th century A.D., a thousand years after Christ. He found examples of addressing God, a few of them, in the impersonal form as the Father. 
But never did he find God addressed directly and personally as Father. Jeremiah's discovered more than that, and and R.C. Sproul summarizes it in the book he wrote on the Lord's Prayer. He writes that Jeremiah also examined the prayers of Jesus. And there he made an equally fascinating discovery. In every prayer of Jesus, recorded in the New Testament except one, he addresses God as Father. Jeremiah says that the significance of this is that Jesus, who was a Jew and a rabbi, was making a departure from tradition. It wasn't just a little departure. It was a radical departure. Of course, this departure aroused profound hostility from his contemporaries. When Jesus referred to God as his father, his contemporaries, the Pharisees, for example, would become enraged. By addressing God in this familiar form, Jesus was indicating a profound sense of intimacy between himself and God. And that's why this prayer that's now so common to us in the moment was so innovative. Because it put before people the possibility of a relationship with God unlike any they had ever known. A relationship with God that was actually opposed by the very ones who were supposed to know God the very best. Those people only wanted God to be transcendent. D.A. Carson writes, The Jews of Jesus' day were inclined, on the whole, to conceive of God as so exalted that personal relationships with Him could scarcely be imagined. He was so transcendent that the richness of personality was frequently lost to view. People of Jesus' day were uncomfortable with a near God. They were more comfortable with a distant God. A God that was acknowledged. A God about whom right things were said. A God for whom all the proper theological propositions were held to be true. But a God who was not very personal. How very Presbyterian of them. Just kidding. I think. They liked God better as a distant God. And then along comes Jesus with this innovation, a direct address to God as Father, with the personal pronoun, our, our Father. We still need to be amazed by that. Are you? Perhaps we rush too quickly past our Father, So we can get on with it, get on with our requests, on with what we want. And what we want usually indicates the agenda that we have for our own lives. Perhaps the amazement of our Father would return to us. If before we ever ask God for a single thing, we just pause to think deeply about this relationship. That's what Jesus is inviting us to do here. He is not just the Father. 
God is our Father. Perhaps we should ponder long and deep about what makes that relationship possible. Look, it didn't cost you or me. It didn't cost us anything to make this intimate relationship possible. But consider what it cost God. It cost God, our Father, His only Son, to make you an adopted son, to make you an adopted daughter, because here's the way the world works. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? See, in this world, there are two systems, righteousness and wickedness, light and darkness. And they stand in opposition to one another. And in this world, according to Scripture, the darkness attempts to overcome the light. Colossians chapter 1 talks about the kingdom of darkness and an inheritance of light. It reads, The Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. This is the work the Father has done. He has qualified you and me to share in the light. He has delivered you and me from the domain of darkness. Oh, Father, thank you. True? Jesus is more specific about the reality of the way this world works. Listen to what he says in John chapter 8. Buckle up. If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. So according to Jesus, you have one of two fathers, God or the devil. Jesus' words, not my word. And God has made it possible for us to name his, Him as Father, so we are not captive to the Father of deceit and death. Is that good news? Jesus says in Matthew 11, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him, come to me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. See, Father means something. It means that God has worked on our behalf to make this relationship possible. It means that God has fought on our behalf because the evil one wanted to have us for himself. He wants you and me 
to be locked away in the dominion of darkness, a darkness whose depth none of us can begin to comprehend because we cannot yet see the depth of that darkness because the father of lies lies to us. He whispers to us, this is the path to freedom. Walk in it. If we could see how deep the darkness really is, we would flee. But we cannot see it. The evil one hides it from us. He hopes until it's too late. But guess what? Our Father, our Father has rescued us from that. And so we say, Father, thank you. And when we pray our Father, we are acknowledging grace and mercy and compassion. Scripture says that we were children of wrath. Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, i.e. listening to the lies of the father of lies, following the prince of the power of the air, the, spirits now that, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, but God. Being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. Thank you, Father. Thank you for sending your Son that we might call you Father. And so when we pray, our Father, we think of Jesus, whose sacrifice made that relationship possible. You and I live in a world that wants to believe, where God is acknowledged at all, that God is Father to all, that all humankind are children of God. How the Father of lies would like us to believe that. How he would love to drain the word Father of every bit of its meaning so that it means nothing to us. A God-hater is a child of God. A person who denies his existence, a child of God. Those who live in rebellion and sin and refuse to submit their lives to God, they're children of God? No! Is God their judge? Yes. He's judge of all humanity, whether humanity recognizes it or not. But Father, no. God is Father only to those who come to Him through faith in Christ. And so we must not cheapen the life and the sacrifice of Jesus. If God is Father to all, and if all humanity are brothers and sisters, then Jesus' words here are meaningless and so is a sacrifice. If the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man is true, then answer this. Why would Jesus die on the cross? Why would he endure all the conflict that he endured on this earth? Why would he not just accept everybody and be liked by everyone? 
It's an easier path. Why not leave everyone alone and let, they want, want, let them do what they want? Let the Pharisees keep doing their thing. Yeah, universal fatherhood of God and universal brotherhood of man. Why not let the tax collector keep abusing people and the uh, adulterers keep committing uh, adultery? Why have any standards at all? Why? If the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man is true, Jesus' life, I'm telling you, would have been so much easier. It would have been free of conflict. But it was not. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Why would Jesus endure all this if the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man is true? He endured it because it's not true. It took his death on the cross for for anyone, for you, for me, to become a greatly loved, adopted child of God, who have the privilege of saying, Our Father. Only faith in Christ and the costly, profound sacrifice He made makes God your Father. So imagine then the excitement that must have been in Jesus' voice on that first Easter morning when He freshly risen from the tomb, said to Mary, Go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Is that good news? So whenever we pray, before we open our mouths to speak, we must do the Father in everything the Word says about who God is. Jesus tells us here in chapter 6, verse 8, that our Father knows what we need before we even ask it of Him. And I'm not suggesting that we not make our requests known to God. But I'm just saying that maybe we should first spend our time on relationship. This intimate Loving, secure, accepting relationship that we have with our gracious, compassionate, merciful Father. Better for us to consider the heart of the Father. That He is inclined to make you His child and that He has acted to make you His child. Such is the depth of His love for you and for me. So let those thoughts orient you when you pray. Our Father. Let's move on. Because we must be intimate with the holy, we need to consider what that actually looks like. If you notice here, after Jesus teaches the disciples to pray, Our Father in heaven, He teaches them immediately to pray, Hallowed be your name. Even this name, the name Father. And hallowed simply means to treat as holy. The name, even Father, holy. It means to reverence. It means to set apart. 
It may sound to us as if Jesus is just making a statement here. Father, your name is holy. Well, yes, that is absolutely true. God's name is holy, and by his name is meant everything that God is. In the entirety of his being, that's his name, and his name is holy. But remember that Jesus is modeling here a prayer. So this isn't a statement. It is instead a request. And when we make a request of God, whatever it is, we are usually hoping that God will bring about some sort of change. And so in this case, the request would be, Father, your name and all that your name represents here on earth is not hallowed. It is not set apart here on earth. Change that, Lord. Make it true that your name would be hallowed, that it would be reverenced. Make it true that you would be set apart, totally other than anything or anyone on earth or in the universe. Because until we appreciate the holiness of God and His transcendence and how other He is than we are, we can never understand the privilege Of calling him father. So now you see where I fall in regards to addressing God as, hey, pops. That's not how we achieve intimacy with God. It may, however, cause us to fail to reverence his hallowed name. Yes, God gives us the privilege of calling him. Abba, the familiar name for father. But Abba does not mean pops. And when we say Abba, Father, it should be with a hush over our souls and awe. Instead, we have made an emoji out of the name of God. O M. Gee, people are so flippant in the way they use the name of the Lord. The name God becomes a filler or just another kind of exclamation point to highlight something important. People seem not to realize they are using the name of God Himself, the Creator, the Sustainer, of the universe, the Almighty One, the One who is omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent, using His name like this, not realizing the character and the nature of the One whose name we use. It's not only to disobey Jesus, but it's to rob the name Father of its power. So please, please, let's be thoughtful every time the name of God comes from our mouths. Let's say it. Only in all, only when we are considering the character of our great God. Having said that, we restrict this prayer of Jesus too much if we limit it just to the words we speak. This prayer is answered only in part when people, particularly God's people, do not any longer use His name flippantly or with an expletive. This request has not been fully answered. His name has not been hallowed if our lives have not been changed. Think about it. You and I wear the name of the Lord, Christian, 
Christ one. We wear the name Son of God. We wear the name Daughter of God. And we too often do not hallow the name of God. We don't set it apart. In fact, we profane the name of the one we wear in the way in which we live our lives. And so, this model prayer of Jesus becomes a request that God would cause us to honor His name with our lives. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, May God protect His holy gospel from being obscured and profaned by unholiness of living. And may we ever make known His holy name to the disciples in Jesus Christ. The last week of Jesus' life on earth, just hours before His death on the cross, Jesus actually prays what He's told everyone else to pray. He says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. See, the prayer of Jesus' heart, because the goal of Jesus' life is that the name of the Father might be glorified. The prayer of Jesus' heart Because the goal of Jesus' life is that the name of the Lord might be glorified. And Jesus had that as a goal for his life because he had such an intimate, loving relationship with his Father. Jesus' goal, it's got to become our goal. Because we have such a loving, intimate relationship with our Father. And that impacts our prayer life. Father, glorify your name through me. Father, hallow your name through me. And when we pray this prayer, we're asking God to help us do just that, that the Lord would help us live holy lives. And since it's a prayer, we are acknowledging, Lord, I can't do it on my own. I need your grace and I need your mercy in order to live a life that hallows And glorifies your name. And only when the Lord answers that prayer can we accept the invitation that King David extends to us in Psalm 34. He says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. David isn't suggesting that you and I can make God bigger than he is. How ridiculous would that be? It's not even a possibility. But our words and our lives can act like magnifying glasses. With them, we can show the world the greatness of God so that God appears to others better and greater than they once believed Him to be. To those who don't know God, to those who don't honor God, to those who have not seen His greatness, David invites us, to, to join him in rectifying that problem, and it is a problem, the biggest problem in our world, that our world does not honor the name of the Lord. And so we must magnify the Lord. 
And in order to do that, we must pray, Our Father, hallowed be your name. Lord, help the people you've placed around me to see your greatness, to see your glory by the way I live my life. And living this way is going to require commitment from us, sacrifice. It's going to require making hard choices. Living this way could even lead to discomfort or even danger. I'm finishing with this. Acts chapter 21. And in this chapter, Luke is writing about his travels with the apostle Paul. And Luke says that while we were staying in Caesarea for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own hand, his own feet in his own hands, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Dun, 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 dun. When we heard this, we and the people urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. That's us, right? We never want anybody to be uncomfortable. Then Paul answered, Hello. What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. And after these days, we got ready and went to Jerusalem. See, that's how we hallow the name of the Lord. With our lives, we are ready to demonstrate that the Lord and His great name is worthy of any sacrifice we have to make. For Paul, it was impending imprisonment and death, but he did not shrink from it. He faced it. He hallowed the name of the Lord. Are we willing? Are you willing to do the same? Is hallowing the name of your Father the goal of your life? The goal that comes from relationship. We love the Father so much, so personally, so intimately that we long to live in a way that hallows His name here on earth. And so we pray. Because Jesus taught us to pray that we're so intimately connected to our Father, our Holy Father, that we seek to hallow His name with our lips and with our lives. Let's pray. Father, that's the prayer of our hearts right now. That with the words we speak, with the lives we live, Your name would be hallowed, set apart reverenced among the people that you have placed around us. Father, we pray that you would make us conscious of our words. Father, that we would never be flippant in our references to you. That we would never use your name thoughtlessly. Lord, it's so holy. We would never use it as a filler. We would never use it just to drive home a point we're trying to make. Lord, may we hallow 
your name. And Lord, with the way we live our lives, we pray that they will be testimonies of our love for you, of the intimate relationship we have with you. Father, we want your name to be hallowed here on earth, that more and more people would come to faith in you through Jesus Christ because of the words we speak and the way we hallow your name in this world. Pray that that would be our reality. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.